So tonight we're going to be finishing 2 Samuel. So you have a Bible, if you have one, you can open up to 2 Samuel chapter 23. And this journey through this book where the second half of David's life with so many triumphs early on as he became king, seven years over Judah and then the rest over the entire 12 tribes of Israel. Then the sin with Bathsheba, Uriah, all that. Then the problems with his children, Absalom, all of that. It's all happened. It's all behind us. That beautiful song in chapter 22, which is also Psalm 18. We focused topically on Saturday night and went through last week verse by verse. So tonight as we come to chapter 23, we pick it up with some final thoughts uh, from the heart of David. We get his mighty men. We get some final events in his life. His life will carry into 1 Kings after this a little bit, but this really sort of wraps up our, our time with David through this summer. Now, verse 1, chapter 23 says this. These are the last words of David. Thus says David, the son of Jesse. Thus says the man raised up on high, the anointed of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me. He who rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. And he shall be like the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds, like the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. Although my house is not so with God, yet he's made me, made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For this is all of my salvation and all my desire. Will he not make it increase? But the sons of rebellion shall all be as thorns thrust away, because they cannot be taken with hands. But the man who touches them must be armed with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they shall be utterly burned with fire in their place. So these are the last words of David, not so much on his deathbed, but really some final thoughts as he's older, looking back on life. He's 70. He's just right in that range. And he's looking back and he's kind of summarizing things and, and what he realizes has been the journey. So these first, this first verse, the son of Jesse, so that takes him to his family. So all of us, we have our family, our parents, who we came from, their legacy. Leah, our daughter, said to me the other day, we were talking about just real estate nationwide and different changes going on in the real estate market. And we were on the Midwest because we have friends like uh, Lucas Timmerman who used to go here there in Fort Wayne, Indiana. So we kind of follow them. And I uh, was speaking with Bethany Hamilton's dad who's got property in Illinois. So we were just talking about uh, Midwest properties. And Leah said, you know, Ohio's really nice. I go, Leah, I know Ohio's really nice. I grew up in Ohio. My mom's from Cleveland. And I used to love to go to Ohio when we lived in Virginia. And even when we lived on the East Coast, we visited Ohio a few times. I said, Ohio's really pretty. See, that Midwest, my mom comes from Cleveland and my dad comes from Madison, Wisconsin. So we spent a lot of time going through Chicago to Wisconsin after we'd visit all the relatives in Cleveland. And those are childhood memories. You have childhood memories. You are the son or the daughter of certain people. He is the son of Jesse, and we are our family and our genealogy. And again, praying for my dad today and thinking about my dad at 92 and just uh, taking care of elderly parents and what that looks like in our life, you know, what that's like. 
because I know a lot of people who take care of their elderly parents, right? And you think, and I think, okay, I want to be really nice to my dad because someday probably Lee or Hannah's taking care of me and Hannah, or me and Jennifer, right? So you think like that. That's just how you think. So David is 70, and he goes, you know what? David, the son of Jesse, that's his family, that's Bethlehem, that's his high school years, that's growing up, that's where God placed him. That's his life. That's, that's, that's Carlsbad. I'm alumni of the month for Carlsbad High School this month, right? I am alumni of the month for Carlsbad High School. That's how I grew up. I'm a Carlsbad guy. That's how it works. When we get to the end of our life, we'll think about, like, who our parents were. We'll, we'll, think, uh, we'll think about, like, where we went to high school. We'll think about, like, uh, I know... With a 35th anniversary coming up for me and Jennifer, you're thinking about like 35 years of ministry and 35 years of marriage and all this stuff. Like, and uh, we have, I know two different couples, right? Bruce and Gloria are having their 50th anniversary. Our neighbor Roger that rides around on the bike at 82, he's having his 50th anniversary in January. And when you get to these places, you look back and you say like, wow, like this, this, that old TV show, This Is Your Life. And David was the son of Jesse. That was his dad, and he's the youngest of all the boys. <laughs> we joke about the Sweeten family out there in Temecula. Many of you know the Sweetens, but they just kept having kids, like 10 of them. I know all the older ones. I don't know any of the younger ones because they moved away when all the younger ones were growing up and, and being dedicated. But the older ones, yeah, Ben, Noah, Hannah, Micah, Josh. That's how it works. And then that's it. We should be thankful for what God's done for us and focus on the good and how we were raised. If our dad was father of the year in Long Beach, right, Tammy? What a beautiful thing. The man raised up by God, raised up on high by God. God would raise all of us up. You know, it's so important, of course, to understand the value of every human life. And ultimately, God has a plan for every human life if we come to faith. And God would raise us up, and he wants our life to count. He wants to use us. That's why we preach the gospel. That's why we so generously in missions. That's why we support people going here and going there and doing these things. Because, because God raises us up. He's raised us up to a calling. We're not saved to be benched. We're saved to participate. And David's just like, I was raised up. Like he was raised up. He was taking care of the sheep. He was raised up. And there was a plan for his life. And you can see the front end of You can think what the front of your plan might look like when you're asked to go on staff in 1987. But in, in 2022, you know what it looks like after 35 years, right? How did you end up in the plumbing business? But you're a very successful plumber after 35 years. It's funny because Devin Molina is a very successful plumber. And Christian Warden is Timmy's best friend. And he's doing all this plumbing. Uh, and, um, I don't want to say internship, but he's a plumber. So we're watching... Bonbon, our grandson, the other day at Leah's house, and they're doing some plumbing work while they took Velzy to the movie. You know, when you're four and you go to the movie for the first time, that's pretty awesome. Go to the theater. But Christian was over doing all the plumbing work, and the water was turned off. And I thought, you know, that's just how life works. Devin comes and fixes our plumbing. He's been doing plumbing for 40 years. Christian Warren's just getting started. Devin's on the back end of all of his plumbing career. Christian Warren's on the front end. I thought, that's just how life works. The person that God raises up. We're all in seasons. We're either starting in the middle or near the end. And David's at the end. The anointed of God of Jacob. As we go through our seasons of life, as we let God use us, and as we make ourselves available to the Lord, may his anointing be upon us. Because that's one thing that we can be sure he wants to do, is he wants to put his spirit upon us. From the book of Acts and the church history and the writings of the apostles in the New Testament, we know that we're born of the spirit when we give our life to Christ. But ultimately, 
Jesus wants to pour out his spirit on us, and he wants us to be anointed. He wants us to be an anointed realtor, an anointed mechanic, an, uh, an anointed engineer, an anointed wife, an anointed mom, he, anointed grandparents. He wants us to be anointed. And that's something we do have determination over in the sense that we make ourselves available for it, and we seek it. Because Jesus said, if you seek, knock, and ask, you'll receive. And he said, how much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who seek, knock, and ask? But we want to be anointed. We don't want to dry up from the Spirit as we get older, but we want to move toward the Spirit as we get older. We want more of the Spirit. We want, if we see our best friend step into eternity, like Elisha did with Elijah, hey, that's coming up, by the way. We, we want to ask for a double portion and have more anointing in 2023 with the Lord, wherever he puts us and whatever he does in our life, than what we ever had in 2022 or the year that preceded it. Yes and amen? Let's agree on that as a body of Christ for a minute. Wouldn't we want more anointing for the back end? Yeah. Aren't the greatest sports heroes the ones that really deliver in the clutch when the game is on the line in the back end? So don't we want to be most anointed down the stretch? Well, and this is the bottom line. With Jesus and faith, we can always seek a greater anointing for tomorrow than that to which we had today. And he wants to put his anointing upon us. The Spirit's always there if we don't quench it, him or grieve him. So the anointing was on David, and we look at his life. There are times when he felt like God took his spirit from him, right? Take not thy Holy Spirit from me, Psalm 51, after the sin with Bathsheba. But yet his, God's spirit was on David. And he said, uh, the sweet psalmist of Israel. You know, he had the song. He always had the song for the Lord. That's pretty cool, huh? Have a song for the Lord. He, he could sing some sweet songs. Oh, one of the things I love about Scott Cunningham, he has so many of these songs he sings are songs God gave him, right? Like you see, I go, oh, how's that work? Like, because I have no musical talent whatsoever, I do marvel like at really good voices. Like uh, all of our worship leaders have great voices, but like, you know, Jeff Anderson's amazing voice, right? Like, it's like, how does a guy get a voice like that? You know, like, how's that work? And when, song, when Scott's doing songs, I go, like, how does he write a song like that? Like, I know you can do like a workshop. This is how you write a song, you know? But it's like, but how do you really write songs like that? It's good to have a song in our heart. And of course, the Bible says have a new song. And we want to have a new song until the last day. The spirit of, the, of the, the, the Lord spoke by me. David acknowledges himself as a prophet. And of course, right away on the day of Pentecost, Peter the Apostle calls David a prophet. And so Jesus affirms the word through David. So among other things that David was, he was a prophet. And he spoke the word of God. And speaking the word of God is something when we get to the end of our life and we can say, hey, you know, the spirit of the Lord spoke by me. Isn't that a wonderful thing to say when you got your grandkids or your family gathered together and you're like divvying up the will or something? You're like, oh, the spirit of the Lord was upon me. That's a, that's a nice thing to say when you're 70 and you're looking upon your life. And even though he's not on his deathbed, that's coming up. But in the end of his life, he's just like taking inventory. Like, ah, oh, you know, the spirit of the Lord was upon me. Like I spoke a lot of things that were true. Like Psalm 22, describing Jesus on the cross. Like, wow. How's David describing crucifixion from being one being crucified 500, 600 years before crucifixion ever was invented by the Romans? The Spirit of the Lord was upon him. His word was on my tongue, verse 2. And again, this is something we can all have when we think about the end of, a life, of our life, that his word was on my tongue. Ah, there's so much that's on our tongue. For the world, it's the, it's the viper, it's the, uh, the poison and toxins on the tongue. But that David could say that like, his word was on my tongue, that we would be dispersing the word of God 
in our life when we're 70 and we look back and we say, what did we talk about? Well, hopefully we talked about the Lord. Then verse three, the God of Israel, the rock of Israel, he who rules over men must be just ruling in the fear of God. So he's describing leadership here, godly leadership. So this applies to all the husbands in their marriage. This applies to all the parents with their children. This applies to all the people that if anyone working underneath them, or if you're a coach and a leader of a sports team or anything like that, this applies to us. He who rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. The best leaders on planet Earth are women and men who whether they lead grown-ups or minors, do so with justice and equity in their hearts and minds as they look upon the people without favoritism and then in the fear of the Lord. It's a very reverent thing to lead the body of Christ. It's a very reverent thing to be a pastor, to teach a congregation, to lead youth, to teach children's ministry. It's a very reverent thing to do. And to whom much is given, much is required, and it's very important, and to whatever degree and capacity God gives me or you or any of us, we want to lead with justice and fairness in our heart and fearing the Lord. We've all seen enough leaders who don't fear God, and that's just a bad ending for them, and we'll leave it there. But in human history, those people that we respect the most Most Americans can't name more than 10 presidents, but almost any American can name Mother Teresa, right? Like, that's just how it works in human history. We remember people who served others and esteemed others. Ultimately, that's what's going to stand out. That's who we want to be, ruling in the fear of God. And he said, those who do this in verse 4, they're like clear shining after the rain. You know, don't you just love those winter mornings in California? Like in January, after we have a winter storm and we're starting to go green. And we've had a big like, northern storm, like big storm. And like the snow, maybe Saddleback gets a dusting, but Baldy and those guys are covered. And those mornings when they're clear after the storm's gone through, those are the most beautiful mornings, especially in the Inland Empire. They're gorgeous. The green and that sun is rising and it's so glorious. That's what a godly leader's like, a godly woman or a godly man who leads people and their company and their business in the fear of the Lord. It's a beautiful thing. Now, he described that his house was not so. So by his own admission, he says, I wasn't that kind of a leader. <laughs> but God's made an everlasting covenant with me. Isn't that kind of cool? Like, this is so David saved by grace. Uh, my house was not like this. Pretty obvious it wasn't. His intention would have been, he was. Solomon would be great. But his grandsons through Solomon, not so much after that. But there'll be some descendants that are pretty awesome. But he said, this is my salvation and my desire, that his confidence was in the everlasting covenant God made with him. So we're reminded yet again as a church tonight, like David at 70 reminds us we are saved by grace and we esteem for good things, we ascribe for good things, we want good things, we go after good things. And all those shortcomings, we can just say, he's made an everlasting covenant with me and he's got it. And he'll forgive me for those things, and he'll take me forward, and he's going to, will he not make it increase? See, I like this, because grace tells us that in spite of our shortcomings, there's still an increase. And I just say yes and amen. 
I mean, the confidence of the church as parents, as grandparents, in every capacity of the human experience and relationships, our confidence in the church is God will give an increase. And he's not giving an increase because we're perfect. He's giving an increase because we're sincere in going forward with him, and he's gracious and merciful, which is how the book will end tonight as well. So praise the Lord. But the sons of rebellion are not so. The evil are so evil and so wicked, you got to go to war. That's what David says about them. So we'll move on. Now, David's mighty men, verse 8. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Joseph, Bashabeth, the Tachmanite, chief among the captains. He was called Adino the Ezanite because he killed 800 men at one time. And after him was Eliezer, the son of uh, Dodai, the Ahohite of the three mighty men with David when they defiled the Philistines who were gathered there for battle and the men of Israel had retreated. He arose and attacked the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand stuck to the sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day. And the people returned after him only to plunder. And after him was Shammah, the son of Agi, the Haratite, the Philistines had gathered together in a troop where there was a piece of ground full of lentils. So the people fled from the Philistines. But he stationed himself in the middle of the field, defended it, and killed the Philistines. So the Lord brought about a great victory. So as we look at David's mighty men, and this is the list. There's 37 total. It's also in Chronicles. Uh, it starts with these three mighty men, Adino, Eliezer, and Shammah. So you think how great David is. You think how his mighty men were great. And these are the three greatest of the mighty men. Their greatness is their courage and their competency. But really with Eliezer and Shammah, they just didn't flee the battle. Really what they're known for is that they did not flee the battle. So twice in military campaign being overrun by the Philistines at a time when the Philistines seemed to win most of these battles, they refused to run. They held their ground. And it just reminds me of these two guys The Bible tells us that the church's most important thing is to stand, and having done all, stand. So really, like standing in a lentil field with the sword of the Spirit, we just need to stand. Like, we're holding holy ground. The kingdom is here and now. Your kingdom come, your will be done. The kingdom is now in our hearts, Jesus said. The kingdom, the king is at the right hand of the Father, and he's coming in glory, and he's going to come. And we represent the kingdom. We're ambassadors for the kingdom. We're citizens of heaven. And really, we stand. These mighty men, if we're going to be mighty women and mighty men of God in 2022 for the church, really, these guys, they stand. They just, they don't shrink back. They don't cower. They're willing to stand. And in their standing, they inspired others. And in their standing, it was the Lord's battles that they were standing for. And in their standings, the, the Lord brought about great victory. In a time of so much confusion and blatant evil, don't we appreciate when we see certain men and women who just stand out for standing for what's right? True, just, noble, and praiseworthy. It's just so awesome. And what I'm realizing this year is not to pay attention to Shimei kicking dust, throwing sticks with his bullhorn in front of your house, but to pay attention to the people who are in the house who are standing for what's right, true, just, noble, praiseworthy, and what God honors. Because we already talked about Shimei is going to always be there. There will always be another Shimei. But will you be the woman or the man in the house that they're screaming against 
who is standing for truth, standing up for the defenseless, and standing up for everything that's right in the universe ruled and centered upon Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. That's really what it comes down to. These men were great because they stood. And men and women who stand up for what's true with conviction and character, it's just going to keep getting better and better for us. Not to focus on all the people that capitulate, take a stand, and then surrender that stand, or who are spineless and cowards, but to be women and men of faith who have courage and are fearless and will not give place to the fear and the darkness. Verse 13 are three men. Then three of the 30 chief men went down at the harvest time and came to David at the cave of Abdullam. So this might take us back to the original time that they're at the cave of Abdullam, or it could be another time they're back at the cave of Abdullam. But the troop of the Philistines encamped in the valley of Rephim. David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. We've seen that already as we've gone through First and Second Samuel. And David said with a longing, Oh, that someone would give me a drink of the water from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. So the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines, drew water from the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate, took it and brought it to David. Nevertheless, he would not drink it. But he poured it out to the Lord and said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Is this not the blood of the men who went in jeopardy of their lives? There he, for he would not drink it. Therefore he would not drink it. These things were done by three, the three mighty men. We don't get their names. They're the three mighty men who, who risked their lives to go behind enemy lines to pull water from the well for David from his hometown. That's pretty amazing. Is it about the water or is it about the faith? Because these men and their loyalty, and how is loyalty lacking too, by the way, in 2022? I suppose it's always lacking. I don't know, but loyalty is always in. Be faithful, be loyal. It's so important to be loyal. It's so important to have each other's back. Because when we show loyalty and courage for others, we will reap loyalty and courage from others. We need to be loyal as best as we can and respect things that way. These men were loyal to David and they risked their lives for a bottle of water. A really good one, the ones that are more expensive when you go to 7-Eleven, right? Like Niagara or something, like real, this is really good bottle of water. This is the best. And you know, when, water doesn't seem that important until you're really thirsty, right? Until you haven't had good water. And you know what good water? My wife is a water connoisseur. We could give her 20 bottles of different brands of water, and she will know the distinction of that water. Some of you are like that. You really know really good water versus like, ugh, that's tap water from Kentucky. You know, I just, ugh. You know, like, there's good water and bad water, right? Nothing against Kentucky, but you know what I mean. Like, just saying. So these men risked their life, but David made it a spiritual thing. So they risked their life for him, and he honored them by giving that water to the Lord. David was always thinking about the Lord. And as these men so elevated him and so exalted him to risk their lives again, Omar is like, no, 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 no. This is about Jesus. See, he took their, I wouldn't say worship of him, but their respect for him. And their lifting up of him. And he said, no, 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 no. This is a God moment. This is a Jesus moment. We're going to take this water. Guys, thank you. But far be it from me 
to receive water that you risked your lives for. We are going to give this to the Lord. He showed them. This is a spiritual leader. He showed them what leaders do. Like he made it an offering. Now he's going to give an offering at the end of the book tonight. And he says, I'm not going to give that to the Lord, which costs me nothing. That's how the book ends. But this is also an offering because it can be like, yeah, thanks, bro. Thanks, guys. My posse went out there and got me water from Bethlehem. He was not that kind of guy. No, it was, in his mind, it was holy water. Because these men, it caught, they risked their lives. These three mighty men risked their lives to bring this water to him that showed their loyalty, their full support, their courage, their fearlessness against the Philistines. And David said, you know what? It's so good you did this for the king, but let's do it for the king of kings. Yeah? See, it's great you did this for me, but ultimately I'm going to take you one step farther. I'm going to elevate your faith because me, I'm a king you see, but we're going to give this to the king we don't see, to the king of kings. We're going to pour this out. This is leadership right here like he was just talking about. He's, he's pouring it out. Guys, around here we serve Jehovah. That's who we serve. I am that I am. That's who we serve. This is for him, not for me. All glory to Jesus. It's a beautiful story. More mighty men. Verse 18. Now Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zariah, was chief among the three. He lifted up his spear against 300 men, killed them, won a name among these three. Was he not most honored of the three? Therefore he became their captain. However, he did not attain to the first three. Benaiah was the son of Jehoadiah, the son of a valiant man from Kabazil, who had done many deeds. He had killed two lion-like heroes of Moab. He had also gone down the killed a lion in the midst of a pit of snowy days. So he fought men and beasts. And he killed an Egyptian, a spectacular man. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand, so he went down to him with a staff, wrestled the spear out of the Egyptian's hand, and killed him with his own spear. These things Benaiah the son of Jehoiada did, and won a name among three mighty men. He was more honored than the thirty, but he did not attain to the first three, and David appointed him over his guard. And David knows who to elevate, right? When you're a smart boss, you're like, well, let's look at everyone's resume. This guy beat the, this guy beat a lion. This guy, he beat the Egyptian in his spirit. He beat those other guys. Hey, I'd like to be captain of the guard. Like, you want, you want to move up a promotion? This guy's awesome. Benaiah. This Benaiah. We haven't heard about him until now. This Benaiah is a warrior and a hero, fearless man, and for the great King David, he was in charge of the king's, the, the captains. He was in charge of the guard, like the closest guard. So when David was fleeing from uh, Absalom, this guy and his guard, they're like the closest guard. You know, like, like they're that kind of guard. That's who they are. And he was the boss. So we learned a little more about the highest. This guy was the highest security for David as the king. This was you know, like, the bird has landed. The bird has arrived. The eagle is here. Like, that's that guy. He's that guy. And that's, that's what he did. So he's honored here. He's honored here in the word of God because he was faithful and he was fearless and he was a good man. And he's a second tier of mighty men with Abishai. So Abishai, you know, he's calling for Shimei's head coming and going. But in the end, Abishai is a pretty special guy too. Now the rest of the mighty men, and I was thinking about this. These men are important enough that their names are in the Bible. And they're in the Bible for being mighty men. These are like Navy SEALs. These are like pararescue in the Air Force. These are like elite Green Berets. These are mighty men who fought valiantly as warriors for their country, for their king, and for their God. Asiel, the brother of Joab, was one of the 30. Of course, he was killed by Abner. 
but Abner warned, warned him, turn around, but he didn't. Elhanan, the son of Dodo of Bethlehem, Shama, the Hardite, Elika, the Hardite, Helias, the Palatite, Ira, the son of Ikish, the Techite, Abizer, the Anathite, Bebunai, the Hushite, Zalam, the Ahadite, Marai, the Netophatite, Helab, the son of Banan, the Nethopatite, Ittai, the son of Ribai, from Gibeah, of the children of Benjamin. So there's a Benjamite there in David's inner circle. Benaiah, a Patharnathite, Hidiai, from the brooks of Gosh, Abi Alban, the Arbathite, Asmaveth, the Barhamite, Elishaba, the Shabanite, the son of Jashin, of the sons of Jashin, Jonathan, Shama, the Hartite, Ahion, the son of Shar, the Hartite, Eliphilet, the son of Asabai, the son of Machite, Elam, the son of Ahithophel, the Yelanite, that is our Ahithophel, by the way, Hezariah, the Carmelite, Parai, the Arborite, Igal, the son of Nathan of Zobah, Benai, the Gittite, Zelek, the Ammonite, Naharai, the Birothite, Armor bearer of Joab, the son of Zariah, Ira, the Ithrilite, Gerob, the Ithrilite, and Uriah, the Hittite, 37 in all. So those are the remainder of David's mighty men. I just had this thought today, kind of a random thought, but, you know, I think pretty randomly sometimes. And I just had this thought. Made me happy we're reading their names tonight in the sanctuary as we go verse by verse to the word of God. Just made me happy. Because these are great men. And 3,000 years ago, these men were great men for the kingdom of God. And they're in his word. And we just read their names, and I did pretty good. <laughs> so there we go. To the 37 mighty men, they had their stories, they had their time. And praise God for people like this who fight for what's good and are militarily trained to do so. For for good and what's true, just, and noble. Hopefully, they certainly were. They were God's military for David. Now, chapter 24. Again, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel, and he moved David against him to say, Go number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Now go, therefore, uh, throughout all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, count the people that I may know the number of the people. Oh, uh-oh. And Joab said to the king, now, now may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times more than they are, and may the eyes of my Lord the king see it. But why does my Lord desire the king desire this thing? Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab and against the captains of the army. So even the captains were aligned with Joab, like, David, bad idea. Therefore, Joab and the captains of the army went out from the presence of the king to count the people of Israel. They crossed over the Jordan and camped in Arar on the side of the town, which is in the midst of the ravine of Gad, and toward Jazer. Then they came to Gilead and to the land of Tahtim Hadshi, and they came to uh, Danjan and around Sidon, and they came to the stronghold of Tyre, so now they're up in Lebanon, and to all the cities of the Hivites and the Canaanites. They, then they went out to South Judah as far as Beersheba, that's Gaza, and so when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. Man, almost an entire year of their life. They had required almost an entire year of the life of these men to do this. Then Joab gave the sum of the number of the people to the king, and there were in Israel 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and from the men of Judah were 500,000 men. So they did it. They obeyed their king a year's labor for this purpose. And then in verse 10, 
we read, and David's heart condemned him after he had numbered the people. So David said to the Lord, I've sinned greatly in what I've done, but now I pray, O Lord, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I've done very foolishly. Now, this story where David takes this census and his heart condemns him is a very interesting one because we'll see in Chronicles probably like a year and a half from now or so that in verse 1 of 24, we're told that the Lord moved David to take the census. And then in Chronicles, we're told that the devil moved David to take the census. So we get one of the things like, hmm, we have to kind of think this one through here. Same story. And what's at work here? But it kind of takes us back to the movie, The Passion of Christ, because when The Passion of Christ came out, the number one topic in the news for quite a few weeks that was controversial is who put Jesus on the cross? So some people would say the devil put Jesus on the cross because we're told that Satan entered Judas's heart and he began to conspire with the priest to betray Jesus. But then Greg Laurie was out front and center there saying, God put Jesus on the cross because God so loved the world, he gave his son that whoever believed in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And then you support with all the Old Testament scriptures building up to it. And then, of course, people like, men put Jesus on the cross. The Pharisees put Jesus on the cross and so on and so forth. So we had those three factors that we have in the human experience, the good, the bad, and the ugly. The good, God, the bad, humanity, the ugly, the devil. And we have the same thing working here. Because when you come to something like this, you say, wow, okay, so God moved David to take the census, but we're told, in a, in a, and then he's, David, his heart condemns him for doing so. But I'm really glad it's in Chronicles that the devil led David to take the census because it really gives us the insight. So in other words, both are at work. With Jesus on the cross, we know that from the foundation of the world, God had the plan to redeem humanity through his son. Right there from Genesis 3.15, the first prophecy of Jesus is that the serpent would bruise him, but Jesus would crush the serpent's head. And the whole story of the Old Testament is one of blood and substitution. Blood, forgiveness, substitution, all pointing to Jesus. God always had a plan, like when Abraham took Isaac up to the mountain. When David described Jesus on the cross in Psalm 22, he always had the plan. That's how he was going to redeem people. So ultimately, all things do work together for good. And when we're told that Satan enters, enters Judas's heart, we know that really God's allowing Judas and Satan to bring about something. And the devil thought that he had victory over God when he killed Jesus and crucified him. Which just goes to show the devil doesn't know everything because, of course, Jesus rose from the grave and defeated the devil through his rising from the grave. And we see that in a universe of self-determination and free will, there are times that evil is allowed, but God has, it's like a chessboard where evil is allowed to make this move, take out the bishop, but God has actually moved the queen around and it's check and checkmate. That's ultimate's going to be checkmate when Jesus comes, right? I mean... We see things like, oh, that looks like check on the chessboard. But ultimately, the Bible makes it very clear. It's checkmate. King of kings, Lord of lords, Revelation 19, is checkmate. In case you don't know what chess means, that means game over. Checkmate. Check means it looks like it's over. Checkmate means it is over. So in this story of David and the census, we have that situation where God allows David, who's now, his sin's not lust here. You know, this just shows there's... There's no shortage of sin. You know, the devil left Satan. The, the devil left Jesus until an opportune time. 
And we're told the devil goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And it just tells us, it just shows us that there's no shortages of sin. Like we have our lust of our eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And those three things, any failure can fall in one of those three categories and its subdivisions. And here's David. He's already fallen for the lust of the eyes, Bathsheba, and the lust of the flesh, the sexual immorality of Bathsheba. But now it's pride. This is a sin of pride. Like, so you're near the end of your life, and, you, and you're the old king, and you're super successful. You've survived all these things that you've been through, all these challenges to your position, to your authority. You have all this wealth, like massive amounts of wealth. But, you know, you just kind of want to know, how many people do you really have working for you? You see it in the New Testament, right? Because Caesar Augustus wants to take a census, too, to tax. Now, there's no reason to think that David was going to tax. It's more like, how strong is my army? It's different than the sin of 2 Samuel chapter 11 when he's young. It's like, wow, this, this woman. This is more like, oh, it's been a, it's, oh, man. All oh, this wealth, and I'm going to give Solomon this, and I got this going. And, and maybe the thought just crossed his mind one day, because when you're semi-retired, you might have more free time. I wonder how many people really we do have in the army. Now, it's one thing to know every penny that you're accountable for to Caesar. You should know if you're a 501c3 to the penny, especially when they double their IRS agents, right? I mean, the government just doubled IRS agents, and they're coming for money, and they're going to come for religious organizations. Jeremy Foster and I had this conversation six, seven years ago that this is where it's going. And we have all of our records to the penny, to the peso, which lay in money of everything. So we don't need to fear evil. Render to Caesar things that are Caesar, right? Be transparent, be right. But some things you just don't know. But David's sin was pride. This is pride here. He just wanted to know. He wanted to know something that was not for him to know. And it was in him. So once the Lord, once the Lord kind of, once David was prideful, because the Lord resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Once David was kind of prideful about it, and the Lord's like, okay, I'll let you do it. And, the, and so the devil's like, oh, I'm going to take David over a cliff right here. That's basically what happened. Once the Lord removes his restraint or protection upon our life, we are in trouble. God forbid that he give me over to my pride, the lust of my eyes, and the lust of my flesh. And God forbid he do the same for all of you and anyone in Jesus' name. We want the Lord to restrain us. We want the Lord, like when your toddler is there and the oven's on and they're oven high where the hand can reach the oven and they're coming toward that fire, we want the Lord to go like that. Because God's good all the time, so why would he let us put our hand in the fire without at least giving us a, Right? But what if he doesn't do that? And what if we're so determined? Because sometimes as a parent, it's like, all right, well, you know, especially when you're teenagers, when they're teenagers, all right, you determine, okay, you know, like, all right, okay. You know, like, sometimes your kids have to learn a lesson when they're becoming young adults. We had that dinner with James Stops, and he said, incremental freedom is the key with kids. You got to give them increment, you got to give teenagers incremental freedom because they will have full freedom when they go away to college. And when those kids go away to college, they're going to have full freedom in a dorm with all these people influencing them that have never influenced them before. So the best thing you can do is teach them incremental freedom to make good decisions on their own before they get to that day. He said, you can never stop a river, but you can try and steer it. I was like, well, I'm sitting with James Dobson. That's good counsel. I'm going to heed that. That's good to know. 
But once the Lord removes his restraint, we're in trouble. And he removed his restraint on David, and David was in capital T trouble. That was it. He was given over to pride, given over to the devil. Even Joab's like, well, don't we just love Joab? He's going to die at the altar of God next book. But Joab's like, it's like, Joab's like, David, David, I know I'm your hooligan, your thug, your enforcer, but it's a really bad idea. And the captain's are like, bad idea, bad idea, bad idea. David's like, I'm the king. I'm the king. I can count the sheep if I want to. Joab's like, David, please, please, no, no, no. No, but he did it. A whole year, a whole year's employment of his best people out there counting sheep. But in the end, God is always bigger than that. And that's the beauty of the story because God's bigger than that. So David's heart condemns him and he realizes it's not about the Lord, you know, moving me to do something. It's about the Lord removing his protection and restraint on my life and allowing me to be me and being given over to me and full of my pride. And I do this nonsense led by the devil and now we're all in trouble and I've led us into trouble. But, you know, no matter how it plays out, the trouble we get ourselves in or the trouble the Lord allows us to get into and removes his restraint in our life, in the end, he will cause it to work together for good to those who love him, which is what he did in this story. There is a happy ending to this story. Verse 11. Now, when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and tell David, thus says the Lord, I offer you three things. Choose one of them for yourself, that I may do it to you. Uh, Here comes the chastening. So Gad came to David and told him, and he said to him, Shall seven years of famine come to you in your land? Mm, Seven years of famine. That's a long time, isn't it, people? Seven years is a long time. Or shall you flee three months before your enemies while they pursue you? Okay, that's three months, a long time, too, at war when you're being chased. Or shall there be three days of plague in your land? That doesn't sound too good either. Now consider and see what answer I should take back to him who sent me. God's not even talking directly with David right now. He's going through Gad the prophet. But David's done well with prophets. When Samuel the prophet anointed him, he received it. When Nathan the prophet reproved him, he received it. And now he's got Gad the prophet. And David said to Gad, verse 14, I am in great distress. Please let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercies are great, but do not let me fall into the hands of man. So let the Lord send a plague upon Israel from morning to the appointed time, from Dan to Beersheba. 70,000 men of the people died. Excuse me, verse 15. So the Lord sent a plague upon Israel from the morning till the appointed time. From Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men of the people died. And when the angel stretched out his hand over Jerusalem, destroyed, the Lord relented from destruction and said to the angel who was destroying the people, it is enough, now restrain your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arunah the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Surely I have sinned, I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Let your hand, I pray, be against me and my father's house. So this dramatic event on the latter end of David's life were the consequences of his pride. And he's still the king, he's still the president, he's still the commander-in-chief, he's the boss, he's the guy. And it's affecting 70,000 people were killed. But a few things that stand out right away. He, he is still receiving correction and the voice of the Lord through the prophets. From Samuel in his youth to Nathaniel in his 40s with the worst day of his life for the worst things he ever did to now Gad in the latter part. Let's put this together. Samuel, Nathaniel, and Gad, he always received the voice of the Lord through the prophets. Now, when we get to kings, not so. Many times the prophets speak like Elijah to Ahab, and the kings don't listen at all to what they're saying. 
So praise the Lord. This is what makes David so great, that even in failure, he receives reproof from the voice of the Lord through the prophets of the Lord. He was teachable to the end. And he's pretty smart at this point, because by the time you get to 70, you realize, do not deliver me over to men. We've seen enough of men in planet Earth on 2020, right? Just take men in the last three years who've gone nuts on this planet, men and women, with their lust for power to use calamity and tragedy to take control and just just go nuts. Why would we ever want to let them rule over us for three months, let alone seven years on our food supply? You'd be much better to say, you know what? Give us the plague. I don't trust men. Tell me what to do. Why would I trust these men? They always have an agenda. Evil men do. Give me three days with the plague. If I live, I live. If I die, I die. It's that simple, man. Give me the virus. Just let it drop on Israel. 70,000 gone. If it's my time, it's my time. David said the days are appointed for me before there was any of them. And if it's my time, it's my time. If it's not, I'll get through it. I've been sick for two months. I'm going to come through this. It's not my time. If you hear I can't breathe one night and I go, it was my time. I'm okay with that. Besides, when is your time? It's your time. I don't fear death. In fact, the early flight looks pretty good right now compared to the later flight. Right? I'm not a coward. I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm willing to stand. And I'm willing to stand with those who do stand. But the early flight's looking good. You know, John Wayne has like maybe 10 flights a day to Atlanta or Denver. There's an early, you know, it's 5, 8, 530, 630, Yeah, the early flight looks good right now for the kingdom. Don't cry for me, like Pastor Chuck said, and don't try and bring me back. When I said goodbye to John Vandekirk from our church when he went to be at the Lord just about six months ago, and I walked into Kaiser just the way I did, right up to the room. He was dying. He was going to die. And, and you know, he, he, you all, many of you know John. He always had the Coke can sitting right over here, kind of there. Wonderful guy. Always brought me back stuff from his trips and stuff. Just loved the Lord. Loved the Lord. Really neat guy. Um, he was very good friends with Lucas Timmerman, who's in Indiana now. He got sick, and we, all of a sudden we looked at him during COVID. He lost like 40 pounds, and then, you know, he had a stroke and he died. But I went to visit him this day and I went to visit him and I played praise music for him. I prayed over him. And, um, you know, this is the beauty of, of how the kingdom is because as I prayed over him and it, when it's your time, it's your time. And I said, John, I love you. I kissed him on the forehead and we're there and no one else was in the room. And I said, well, I said, you go. And I talked about this Saturday night, not this story, but when people are going to eternity and you're there as the pastor. And I said, John, you're going to go see the king, man. You're going to the king. He's like, ah. You remember John always gave the thumbs up. So he's like, ah. And, uh, you know, so I love you. Thanks for supporting me. Thanks for trusting me as your pastor for the last 12 years. And uh, I'll see you in glory. I'll never forget it. Because you got to leave the room. At some point, you got to leave the room, right? Like, you're not, you know what I'm saying? Do you understand what I'm saying, WG? At some point, you got to leave the room. When someone's, you're going to leave the room. And you're saying goodbye. And it's real. They're going to heaven and you're not. You're still here. And I, and I said, I'll see you in glory. I'm walking out the door. I'll see you in glory. And, and John goes, <laughs> and I called Sam as my witness. And what did I tell you, Sam? I said, he's going to the Lord very soon. By nine that night, he was with the Lord. I'll see you in glory. And he gave me a thumbs up. You will see me in glory. He, yeah. So if the Lord drops a plague on 70,000, he drops a plague on 70,000. And when I'm done, I'm done. Because whether we live 92 years like my dad 
or nine years like Trinity Jameson, the days were fashioned for us when as yet there was none of them. And he holds them in his hand. And our life is a vapor. Think of all the people, like Peter the Great had 16 children and only two became adults. Like, back in the day, people had kids and some of them died before they reached three, four, or five. Like, life is short, life is a vapor. Redeem the time for the days are evil. That's it. So I'd rather trust in the mercy of the Lord and let him drop a plague on 70,000. And if he takes me, he takes me. You may not feel the same way. You might prefer food shortages for seven years or someone giving us beat down for three months. But me, I'm like David. I'll just say, I've sinned, drop the plague, whatever. Three days, mercy of the Lord. If I'm standing on day four, good for us. Verse 18. And God came that day to David and said to him, get up. So the plague, you know, he saw the angel of the Lord in the plague. And Gad came to David and said, get up, erect, build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arunah, the Jebusite. So David, according to the word of the God, excuse me. So David, according to the word of Gad, went up as the Lord commanded. Now, uh, Arunah looked and saw the king and his servants coming toward him. He's like, oh my goodness, here comes the king. So Arunah went out and bowed before the king with his face to the ground. Then Arunah said, why has my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, to buy the threshing floor from you, to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be withdrawn from the people. Now Arunah said to David, let my lord the king take and offer up whatever seems good to him. Look, here are the oxen for burnt sacrifice and threshing implements and the yoke of oxen for wood. All these king, O king, Arunah said, give, had given to the king. And Arunah said to the king, may the Lord your God accept you. Then the king said to Aruna, no, but I will surely buy it from you for a price, nor will I offer a burnt offering to the Lord my God with that which costs me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for the 50 shekels of silver, and David built there an altar to the Lord, offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord heeded the prayers for the land, and the plague was withdrawn from Israel. A couple of key thoughts here. Like we saw uh, just uh, last week, that after the seven sons of Saul were hanged, that the Lord healed the land. The justice was initiated, and there was a response from the Lord that gave us the interpretation of the story. And here, the Lord heeded the prayers for the land. The final verse of 2 Samuel, isn't that? I've probably been through in 2 Samuel, it's like a rough road trip or a, a, a cruise that didn't go so well on a boat, right? We're coming to port. The last thing is the Lord heeded the prayers for the land. Isn't that nice to know? It's a happy ending. Second Samuel is a happy ending for all the uh, difficult things of the book. And the plague was withdrawn from Israel. But the plague served its purpose. 70,000 people, God had a plan that that was their last day, their last three days. And that was just how it is. And who can resist the Lord and who has ever prospered when they do? It's appointed to men to die once and then the judgment. What really matters is not how we die, but how we live. Pastor Chuck used to say it's, don't tell me you can die for the Lord. Show me you can live for the Lord. That's way more important. It's not how we die. It's how we live. And nonetheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith? And who is that faithful, wise servant who his master finds when he comes on that day? David says, I'm not going to let you do my offering. We're saved by grace. So we know that we don't save ourselves. And yet, with a life of faith, there is sacrifices. There are things you sacrifice. 
I sometimes joke about how Pastor Chuck was the king of getting volunteer labor, right? Like when he'd do work at Green Valley or somewhere like that, he could get, fellas, you're going to go serve the Lord for the weekend. We're going to feed you lunch. You know, he was so good at uh, volunteer labor. And guys would give a whole day of their life and go hammer nails and all this stuff, and he'd give them lunch. And I was like, you know, Chuck was really wise with that kind of stuff. And I talk about, like, he got maximum return on investment with minimal expenditures for this labor. But in the end, he was really giving them a chance to be blessed for eternity, wasn't it? Because how many of those people who built Green Valley and built Marietta and all these things back in the day, or Twin Peaks way back in the day, that are in eternity now, and isn't that fruit for them on the day of the Lord? Isn't the time they took... When the wife said, honey, go build Pastor Chuck's retreat center in Alpine Valley. When they, like, isn't that fruit for eternity? Now they're gone. Is, that's their eternal fruit. We will not give the Lord that which costs us nothing. We are saved by faith. We are saved by grace. But the sacrifices of our time, our energy, and our resources done for Jesus are never in vain. And it should cost us something. It, it's It's... It's a priceless grace, not a cheap grace, though it's free. And when the Lord says, go for it, 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 time, energy, we need to do it. Because once we're in eternity, we can't go for it. And that's that. So I love the ending of this book. And some of you know this, but not all of you. The place where the plague was stopped at this house is Mount Moriah, the place where Abraham offered up Isaac. It's Mount Moriah, the place where Jesus was offered up as a sacrifice at place of the skull, Golgotha. And it's the place where Solomon built the temple. And it's the place where the future temple will be built before the return of the Lord. That's this place. You might argue this land from 3,000 years ago where this plague was stopped and David said, I'll not give that, which cost me nothing to the Lord. It is the most important place of real estate on planet Earth in 2022. Because the Mount of Olives is right next to it, and that's where Jesus is coming to split the Mount of Olives at his return. (laughs) You know, serve the Lord, appreciate his mercy, trust in his mercy. If the plague falls on you, it falls on you. But trust in his mercy. God forbid we trust in men. Let us love men, serve men, and care for men, and forgive men. Some men trust in chariots, but we will trust in the name of our God. So whatever the Lord has, let us embrace it and let us, whatever he costs us to give, let us give it and never look back knowing that the kingdom is in front of us and it's always forward with the Lord Jesus Christ.